Uh, If you would, open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 22 through 36 uh, for the sermon this morning. Uh, If you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me as we read from this portion of God's Word. This is God's Word. Let us give it our attention. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You may be seated. Let us pray. Lord, your word is truth. Would you sanctify us in your truth? Help us to see Jesus in this, your word. We pray that your spirit who inspired uh, Peter, even as he preached, and Luke as he recorded these things for us, that same spirit would open our eyes, illumine our hearts and minds to receive your word with faith and love, to understand it, to lay it up in our hearts, and to practice it in our lives. Bear much fruit in us for the glory of your great name, for we ask it in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen. Every year uh, around July 4th or other significant dates in our nation's history, there's often a renewed interest in the founding documents of our nation. Declaration of Independence, uh, uh, Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. 
There's maybe a renewed interest in some of those documents now just because of recent events going on in our nation. But at the very least, when we celebrate uh, the anniversary of our nation's beginning, its founding, uh, there's often this renewed interest of going back and seeing what these founding documents say. And, And oftentimes there are movements where people perhaps sense a drift, a movement away from founding commitments, founding principles, and these founding documents serve, in some sense, as renewal documents. Go back, see what they say, try to understand them, and try to apply them to the present day. Uh, This happens in other places as well. You could think about the Magna Carta and how it has served that purpose in England over many centuries, way longer than our Constitution. Uh, These founding documents are often appealed to as sources of renewal for identity, for mission, for purpose. As the church, we don't don't look to secular governmental documents as our founding documents. Rather, we look to the whole Bible uh, as our source of identity, of mission, and purpose. Uh, We look to the scriptures that God has given to see who we are, why we exist, how we should live, who this God is who has called us into loving fellowship with himself and given us this mission to be his witnesses on earth until Christ comes. The Bible is a founding document in many ways. The book of Acts, uh, in a very specific way, is a founding document for the church. In it, we see this foundation being laid in the apostolic era before the apostles died, showing the fulfillment and the expansion of God's promise to establish a people for himself, to bring his kingdom through the preaching of Christ crucified and risen for sinners. And in that sense, the book of Acts is this ongoing perennial source of spiritual renewal for the church. Because what we see on the day of Pentecost, we've we've read about in in Acts chapter 2, is the beginning, the, the foundation, the establishment of the church of Jesus Christ. Rooted in all of the Old Testament covenant promises to God's people, now fulfilled in the coming of Jesus and expanded to include all nations who call upon the name of Jesus Christ. And in this, we see that at the heart of Pentecost, at the heart of this establishment of the church, lies the plan and the promises of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, particularly expressed in the promises to David which Peter here in this sermon says are fulfilled in Jesus, who was given, crucified, buried, raised from the dead, and now ascended to God's right hand, having poured forth the Holy Spirit. In other words, you could say, the plan and the promise of God to his people Israel has been fulfilled in Jesus and now is proclaimed by his people, the church. And so in this passage, we see this plan and these promises of God fulfilled in Christ uh, in in three different ways, three different ways. Uh, We see that Jesus received divine attestation. He is accredited by God as the Christ, the Messiah. We see as well that Jesus' saving work, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, are all part of a divine plan. It's all part of God's plan. To bring redemption. And we see finally that Jesus is the Lord in whose name we find salvation. He is 
the Lord in whose name we find salvation. Uh, Let's look first at the way that Jesus is divinely attested by God. Peter has been preaching, you remember uh, perhaps from last week, the day of Pentecost comes in Jerusalem, this Jewish feast, the disciples are gathered, the Holy Spirit promised by Jesus is poured out upon them and they begin to speak in uh, different languages, the languages, the native languages of the people who had gathered there, these Jews who had gathered in Jerusalem for this feast. There's all this confusion. What is this? What's this noise that we're hearing? Uh, These people are all from Galilee. How are they speaking uh, our languages, our native tongues? And Peter stands up amidst the group and begins to explain to them what's going on. He preaches this sermon, and we're kind of in part two of the sermon. The first part, he points back to the prophet Joel and says, what you're seeing today is not a bunch of drunk Galileans babbling out of their minds. Rather, what you're seeing today is the fulfillment of of divine prophecy, namely from the prophet Joel, that in the last days, brought in by Jesus and his kingdom, the Holy Spirit would be poured forth, and all manner of people would receive the Holy Spirit. There'd be an expansion of the Spirit's presence among the people of God. And he says, that's what you're hearing. And then he ends that part of the sermon by quoting the end of Joel chapter 2, which says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So the question is, the the point of Peter's next section in his sermon is, who is this Lord? What, What name is given by which men must be saved? Who is the, what is the name of the Lord in which there is salvation? And so his attention turns from the Holy Spirit as the promise of prophecy to Jesus crucified and risen as the fulfillment of God's plan. And notice he says at the beginning verses 22 through 24, that Jesus has been attested by God through signs and wonders. Jesus, in other words, has credentials. Uh, Many of you probably work in places where there are security systems around the building and you have to have a badge that's got some sort of magnetic device in it and you have to go up to the entryway and hold your badge there and then the door unlocks. You've got to have credentials, right, to get into the building, to get into your computer, to have access to the things that you need for work. And somebody gave you those credentials. Uh, Jesus has credentials of a different kind. He is attested, he has credentials as the long-awaited and long-promised Messiah. God attested to this fact in Jesus through what Luke calls uh, miracles and wonders and signs. He says, he was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs. This helps us to see that part of what Luke, part of what Peter rather is saying is that in Jesus, the kingdom of God has come, and the proof of that are the wonders and the signs that Jesus carried out throughout his ministry. And this helps us, in many ways, to see the purpose of of Jesus' miracles and signs. In the Old Testament, and any time the writers of the Old Testament talk about signs and wonders, they're almost always, with some exceptions, but almost always connected to God's redemptive work in the Exodus. This major redemptive event in the Old Testament, God bringing his people out of slavery, which becomes the pattern of the redemption that Jesus brings in his own exodus, bringing us out of sin and judgment, which means 
signs and wonders serve the purpose of pointing to the fact that this is God at work, particularly that this is God at work in Jesus. In other words, you might ask it this way. Why does Jesus perform the miracles that he performs that we read about throughout the Gospels? Why is he healing? Why is he multiplying bread and fish? Why is he raising the dead and and opening blind eyes and unstopping deaf ears? Why is he doing all of these things? Sometimes we kind of approach it as as if this is some sort of magic show, that Jesus has power and he's just demonstrating power for the sake of demonstrating power, as though the signs are an end in themselves, just to impress people. And sometimes people in the book of Acts get confused about that as well, as we'll see when we come to Acts chapter 8. But notice Luke calls them signs. They, they function as signs. They, they point beyond themselves to something else. They're meant to direct our attention not to themselves, but to the one who is carrying out these signs. So, so think for a moment. Peter, Peter's talking to this group of people, and he says, you, you've seen what Jesus did. God attested to him through signs and wonders in your midst, just as you yourselves know. So what what were some of those signs that they would have seen? And what did they mean? Jesus multiplied five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 men plus women and children. And then he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. The sign is attached to who Jesus is and why he's come. He's come to give salvation as the bread of life. He heals the blind man, and then he says that he is the light of the world and that anyone who walks in him will not walk in darkness. He opens our blind eyes spiritually and gives us light. He heals a lame man whose friends bring him to Jesus, and after he raises the lame man from his pallet, He says that he has authority to forgive sins. The sign points to Jesus' power not just to heal, but to heal us spiritually and to forgive all our sins. The disciples are fishing. They catch nothing. Jesus says, throw the nets out again, and he brings in a load of fish, and the disciples are in awe. And Peter says, get away from me. Peter recognizes his own sin in the presence of God. They are in awe of Jesus, and they recognize that he is is no mere man. He calms the storm as the Lord of creation. He raises Lazarus because he is the resurrection and the life. All of these signs and wonders, Peter says, point to the fact they they are signs given from God to show that Jesus is indeed the long awaited and promised Messiah who would bring the kingdom of God, reverse the curse of sin, and rescue God's people from sin and all of its consequences. John himself in his gospel says he didn't even record all of the things that Jesus did. No book in human history could hold all that Jesus did, but he says that he's written these particular things. Why? So that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and in believing have life in his name. Peter tells them, You've seen God's work in Jesus, that he is the Christ. It's evidence that is clear. It was in their midst. And they're meant to produce faith. And yet they didn't respond in faith, did they? Peter says, you you crucified him. Even though you saw these signs, you crucified him. And yet this was part of God's plan. Not only does Jesus have 
divine accreditation, but Jesus' work is also part of a divine plan. Notice, notice how Peter describes the work of Jesus and what, what happened in Jesus. In verse 23, it says, This man, you saw attested by God, he was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. It was God's plan. Yet something else also was taking place. He says, you nailed him through the hands of godless men. You nailed him to a cross. You put him to death. But God raised him again from the dead. Notice this back and forth between God's plan, God's sovereignty, and, and human action and human evil and wickedness, human responsibility. They, respond, they responded to Jesus not with faith, but rather put him to death. And yet Peter says this was part of God's plan. We notice just a few things from this. Uh, one, there is, there's mystery. There's mystery in the relationship between God's sovereign plan and decree from all eternity, uh, unchanging in the mind of God, that is then carried out by humans with free moral responsibility. Notice that the people who put Jesus to death, they sinned. It was a wicked act. It was murder. They are responsible for that, and yet it was, it was part of God's plan. God planned for these wicked men to put Jesus to death in such a way that God is not the author of sin. God does not sin through human sin, but his plan includes human sin. But he's sovereign over all of it so that it all works towards his purposes. There's mystery here. God's sovereignty is comprehensive. There's nothing that happens in, in all of history that happens outside of God's comprehensive full plan, including the crucifixion of Jesus at the hands of godless men at the cry of the Jews. Crucify him, crucify him. One writer says to describe this relationship, God gave him, they took him. What God permitted, they performed. Or you can think about it in terms of the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis and how Joseph himself sums up his life with his brothers. He says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good, for the saving of many. God's sovereignty includes human evil without removing responsibility of humans and without making God a sinner. Jesus himself says that Judas's betrayal of him was planned, but woe to the one who carries it out. There's a mystery between God's sovereignty and human responsibility, yet Jesus' death was part of God's perfect plan. Notice as well that this is a plan that was promised long ago in the scriptures. Peter says that it was impossible for Jesus to be held in the power of death. It was impossible for him to stay dead. Why? Because it was promised that the son of David would have an eternal kingdom on an eternal throne and that he would die and not stay dead. Notice what Peter quotes here in verses 25 through 28. He quotes from Psalm 16, pointing to the fact that Jesus' death and resurrection was part of God's sovereign plan. Psalm 16, uh, you can go and read the whole thing. You might have read it during the prelude. It's a psalm of confidence. David is in danger, 
uh, from what we don't know. Maybe Saul is after him, but he's in some danger, and he's crying out to the Lord for the Lord to rescue him from danger. And, and as he does, he has confidence that the Lord will rescue him, that the Lord will deliver him from this threat on his life. And so he says, I saw the Lord always in my presence. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. And then he says in verse 27 here, quoting Psalm 16, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, which is another word for the grave. It's not talking about hell. It's talking about the grave. Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Think about this for a minute. How does David describe his confidence that the Lord will deliver him from the threat of danger? It's an odd description. You might, he might just say, I will be in danger, but you will deliver me from danger, and I will praise you. That, he says that in other places, but that's not what he says here. He says, you won't abandon me to the grave, which assumes he's going to be in the grave. You won't allow your Holy One to undergo decay, which means he's in the place where normally decay would happen, specifically the grave. It's an odd way for David to talk about being delivered from danger. And part of what Peter's saying here is that David's kind of talking about two things at the same time, which is how prophecy often works. He's saying, God will deliver me, and I will praise him, but he's pointing ahead to God's deliverance of the Christ, the Messiah, who will die but not be left in the grave, who will be in the place where decay would normally happen, but he won't be given over to decay. And so Peter says to these Jews who are all gathered around him, this can't be just about David. David's dead. He's buried. He's still in the tomb. You can go see the tomb. But rather, David looked ahead and based on the promises that God had made to him, that he would have a son on his throne forever, David looked ahead and prophesied that the Christ would be resurrected. And there's only one person who fits that description, Peter says. This Jesus, whom you killed and God raised, and we have seen him. We are witnesses to the fact that Jesus has fulfilled God's plan prophesied to David. So why couldn't Jesus stay dead? Because God planned for him not to stay dead. He would die, but not remain there. He would be raised again from the dead. But there's another reason, too, that Peter hints at here that's not explicit. Why doesn't Jesus stay dead? He doesn't stay dead because he's not dying for his own sins. That's, that's the glory of the cross and the resurrection, that it is death in the place of another. Namely, or more specifically, it is innocent death in the place of those who are not innocent. Jesus gives himself as a substitute, as a perfect representative in the place of sinners. He bears in his flesh our sins, our guilt, our condemnation. And because it was not his but was placed upon him even by his own father, he can't stay dead. Because he is the only one, the only righteous one who can give himself in the place of sinners and not be held in the power of death. The, the bands of death could not contain him, but he burst forth from them in glorious resurrection power to show that he alone is able to conquer and to forgive sins. 
and to render powerless him who holds the power of death. Jesus couldn't stay dead because it wasn't his death alone. He was dying for us. He was dying for you, for all those who would trust in his name. The beauty of the resurrection is that he is raised as a way of showing that his sacrifice is enough to cover over our sins. Peter and his friends, his companions, are witnesses to all of this, that Jesus is the fulfillment of divine prophecy and that he is the one who has been attested by God to bring the kingdom of God through his life and death and resurrection. And so finally, we see the conclusion of Peter's sermon that Jesus is the name. He is the Lord in whose name there is salvation. Notice the the punchline here in verse 36. He's laid out his argument. David prophesied about the resurrection of the Christ. David's dead. It's not about him. David didn't ascend up into heaven, but rather talked about his own Lord being at the right hand of God. And Jesus is the one who is there and who has poured forth his spirit. In verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is the Lord in whose name there is salvation. There's just three three things from this uh, last conclusion, or rather two things from this conclusion of Peter's sermon. First, Peter says that Israel, all who would hear him, uh, which was just Jewish people at that point, all who would hear him must know and can know with certainty uh, that Jesus is the Lord, the exalted Lord, and he's the Christ, the Messiah about whom God had promised who would come and redeem us from our sins. Peter says that Israel can know for certain. This word for certainty here is often used to describe um, soldiers keeping prisoners secure under armed guard. It has the sense of strong, secure certainty. In other words, Peter is saying, based on... God's attesting to Jesus and his miracles and signs and wonders based on the fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament and our eyewitness account that Jesus rose from the dead and we have seen him, you can know with strong certainty that there is salvation in Jesus. You can have certainty about this. You can have confidence. We can have confidence that believing in Jesus really does give salvation That Jesus really is who he claims to be, the Lord and the Christ, the Savior, the Redeemer of all God's people. You know, we live in a world where um, doubt is celebrated. Uncertainty is a virtue. And and I have friends who will say that, um, that, that faith is not certainty, Uh, but rather there's more value in uncertainty as it's coupled with faith. And yet here you have Peter saying that Jesus, who he is and what he has done, Jesus is the objective source of all security with God, of all certainty that God's promises are yes and amen, that they are true and that he never fails, that Jesus is the proof of God's certain faithful promises. 
so that we can have personal experience of certainty as we come to Jesus and trust in his name. There is, to be clear, room for doubt in the Christian life. We all struggle with that. Uh, we, we, our hearts are not made perfect the moment we come to Jesus. There are often occasions where we struggle to see how God's promises can be true in the moment that we're currently living in. There are lots of experiences that shake our experience of certainty in the promises of God. Many of you have experienced that, where you look at your own life and you say, how can God, how can God be faithful here? How, how is it that God is keeping his promises right now? Uh, whether, whether it's death, suffering, heartache, just confusion in life, we all experience that. And I want you to know that there's room for that experience, that struggle of doubt in the Christian life. It doesn't mean that you've been cast off just because there is darkness. But at the same time, the question is, what do we do? What do we do with those doubts? What do we do with the doubts that we experience and the struggles that we have to believe? Well, I hope that Peter's sermon is an encouragement to us to look to Jesus, to see how God attested to who Christ is through his works, his signs and wonders, his own death and resurrection, to see how Jesus' work is the fulfillment of prophecy a thousand years or more or less before Jesus came. The whole Testament is full of these promises of Christ, and he fulfills them to the most minute detail. Hopefully, we can bring our doubts to Jesus and say, Lord, help me. Help my unbelief and find certainty in Jesus' fulfillment of these promises. We all have doubts. We all may struggle with doubts, but Jesus promises to give us assurance, and we can have certainty as we believe in him. Confidence. Secondly, uh, and finally, as we close, consider both the audience of this sermon, uh, not, not you, of, of Peter's, Peter's sermon, consider the audience of Peter's sermon and the preacher of Peter's sermon for just a moment, and consider the fact that if you still have ears to hear, if you're still breathing and living, if anybody's still breathing and living, they are not too far gone from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Just think about who is preaching and who is listening to this sermon in the book of Acts. Consider the audience. These are the Jewish people who had all of these promises in their own scriptures of the servant who would suffer on their behalf of the Messiah who would die but not stay dead and who would rise again. They had all of these promises, and Jesus fulfilled them. They saw him attested by signs and wonders. And what did they do? They put him to death. They crucified him. Pilate, the godless Gentile, offered to give Jesus back to them in a prisoner exchange, a prisoner release. And they said, no, we don't want him. We want the murderer Barabbas. Give him to us, but this Jesus, crucify him. Put him to death. They cried out for his blood, having only a week earlier crying out his praises as he entered Jerusalem. And here they are now, probably many of the same people. They had come for the Passover, and now 50 days later, they're there for Pentecost. 
Many of them had been there. Peter says that they had seen Jesus' works. Many of them had been in the crowd, presumably crying out for his death. Peter says at the beginning and the end of this section, you nailed him to the cross. You crucified him. And yet, what is he doing? He's preaching to them the good news that there is salvation in the name of Jesus whom they crucified. God's grace is for anybody who can hear, who will listen, and who will respond to it with faith, even for those who had the blood of Jesus on his hands, on their hands. And of course, in many ways, we're no different. Our sins put him on the cross. We crucified him as well. But God's grace is for all who will believe so that they might be forgiven. And then consider Peter the preacher. Peter, that great denier, who pledged to Jesus, all will leave, but I will not. All will scatter, but I will stay with you. And then three times, one after the other, denying that he had any relation to Jesus, any connection to him, cursing a teenage girl who called it into question. Here he is, this leader of this band of uneducated fishermen and tax collector and zealots who scattered when Jesus was crucified. Now here he is, having received grace from Jesus for himself, now proclaiming it to others. Friends, if Jesus is enough for Peter, for the Jews who, by the hands of godless men, put Christ to death according to God's plan, if Jesus is enough for them, how much more so for us now? And so may we find certainty in this Jesus, the crucified, risen, now ascended Lord, according to God's plan, the fulfillment of prophecy, And may we, like Peter, be those who, having received and experienced God's grace and the certainty of his promises, invite others to know that Jesus is both Lord and Christ, and in his name, there is salvation for all. Would you pray with me?